Ecclesiastes chapter number 12. I want to begin with verse number 9. Ecclesiastes chapter number 12, beginning with verse number 9. I will read odd number verses. So I'll read 9, 11, and 13. And I would ask that you will read the even number verses, 10, 12, and 14. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you don't have that version of the Bible, we will have it on the screen for you. Ecclesiastes chapter number 12, begin with verse number 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The words of the wise are like golds and like nails firmly fixed on the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have your seat. If you've been paying attention to where we started and ended in the book of Ecclesiastes, you may have noticed that we skipped one section, which would be Ecclesiastes 11 and uh, eight, uh, 11 and 7 through 12, 8. We skipped that uh, intentionally. That verse has a good word for us, uh, especially uh, youth and young adults. And so with most of our youth, uh, with a number of our youth being out this Sunday at the Focus Conference, um, I decided that uh, we would skip that section, go to the end, and come back to it in the next couple of weeks. Um, I don't normally announce when I'm not preaching, uh, but I think you will want to be here next Sunday. I have a friend uh, uh, from Houston, Texas, that's going to be in town, um, and so he's going to preach God's word. I'm excited to hear him minister to God's word, and so I would encourage you to be here next Sunday um, on February 25th, and then after that, we will come back and finish this last portion of Ecclesiastes. In this final section here of Ecclesiastes chapter number 12, in case you didn't know, I will tell you this little bit about me. I consider myself to be an avid reader. I buy myself, well, I buy roughly a couple of books a week. And I try to read that many per week as well. It has been, I love to read, I love to learn. And it has been said, if you're not learning, you're not leading. So I love to read. The, the challenge with buying two books a week, roughly, sometimes more, is the challenge is making sure I don't buy a dud. There are some books that are just bad. Some books that somebody should have wrote a blog about rather than wasting inking paper and putting it, having it published, and putting it to market. So what do you do to make sure you don't buy a bad book? Well, what I do is, obviously, I read the title, see if that gives me any insight into what the book is about. Then I actually try to find a sample 
of the book, I, and when I open the book, I immediately go to the table of contents. And I look through the table of contents to see what are the chapters about. And a lot of times I can tell from the table of contents whether it has content that may be of interest to me. Sometimes they come up with these cute little titles for their chapters, and I have no idea what they're talking about. And normally I put skip past. I don't want this book. Another thing that I do is because I buy most of my books via Amazon, um, I go to the bottom and I read reviews of the book. How many stars have people given this book? A lot of times you can go on the reviews and people will actually have book summaries and book reviews, and that will tell you a lot about what's in the book and it helps me decide what's also whether I want to buy this book or not. Another thing that I do is I go and read the foreword. Who wrote the foreword to this book? Before the book ever gets, uh, and before the author ever introduces the content, there are oftentimes someone who will write an intro to the book and they will encourage you um, to read this book for a number of different reasons. That foreword that's written is oftentimes an endorsement of the book. They endorse the author and they endorse the content that's in the book. So oftentimes there are people that I know in Christian writing circles that I can say, I trust this person. So if this person endorses the author and endorses the content, I will go ahead and buy the book. Sometimes the publisher will have all these different people to write some kind of quick one or two lines that says, this book is awesome, buy it. I only read two chapters total through skimming this book, but you should really buy it. That's what they really should say. And so endorsements are important to validating the authenticity and the reliability of a book. Even if you get outside of books, in a few months, we'll hear more from all these politicians on the local level, state level, state level, and federal level. There will be people running for office, and one of the things that they will want is an endorsement from someone that has a lot of credibility with certain of voting blocks, someone who is very influential with certain people, they will seek out these endorsements. They will tell people, this person has endorsed me, so you can trust me. You can vote for me. Essentially, what we have here in these last few verses of Ecclesiastes is some anonymous person endorsing this book this writing these words to what he calls his son. And that's what, in, in, in Jewish uh, culture, they didn't put the forward or the endorsement at the front of the book. They will put it at the back of the book. They call it an epilogue. And so that's where we find ourselves here in this last section of Ecclesiastes. Is this book, these words, these writings, this author trustworthy? Look with me, first of all, it's simply the endorsement of the book. Verses 9 through 11, the, the endorsement of this book. The first thing this person does in endorsing this book is he says, let me review with you the person, the author. He, this this person endorses the author and the content of the book. And just in case you don't know, an endorsement is a public statement of affirmation, approval, and support for something or someone. And so here's what he has to say about the author. He says that this author is wise. And, and, and in case you didn't know, Wisdom is not the accumulation of information. It is not the accumulation of knowledge. 
Wisdom is knowledge in practice. Wisdom is skillful living. It's taking what you know and putting it into practice. And he says, because this author is wise, he's worth reading and imitating. Not only is the preacher, the author of the book, not only is he wise, but he's also a teacher of knowledge. Verse 9 says he sought to teach the people knowledge. In other words, this preacher was committed, our language, to developing fully devoted followers of Christ. Bible uses the term discipleship. The same word in Hebrew that is used for teaching is the same word that's used for learning. Whenever you have teaching and learning going on, you have discipleship. It don't have to just be in, uh, 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 in, in, in Bible and following Christ. You have a disciple if you're mentoring someone at work, at home, whatever. If, if you, there's teaching and learning involved, the biblical term for that is discipleship. And so now he's saying this preacher is a discipler. He teaches others, and others learn from him. Now, since I had the opportunity to talk about discipleship, let me give you a few free nuggets. Discipleship involves the transfer of information, knowledge. However, the transfer of information is not discipleship. The aim of this transfer of information is that the student will become like the teacher. Jesus even taught this to his disciples. He he taught them that the student is not above the teacher, the slave not above the master. The goal of discipleship is always for the student to become the teacher. For us, the master teacher is none other than Jesus Christ. Friends, we have been predestined, don't don't, don't start with me today, but we've been predestined, here's what we've been predestined to, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's your destiny, to be like Jesus. So the goal of discipleship is to help people along in their walk with Christ. The goal of discipleship is to help others become more like Christ. And so this preacher was a discipler. He he was wise and knowledgeable, and he taught others. And so just based on these two things, he was worth reading and worth imitating. So then how did this preacher go about teaching and conveying wisdom? We looked at the person. Now look at the process. Verses 9C through 10. Now, let me help you something here because there's a lot of A, B, C, Ds uh, after these verses. All A, B, C, D means is it's per clause. So anytime you have a few words and then there's some kind of punctuation, whether it's a comma or a semicolon or whatever punctuation marks there are, I've been at school too long. That, That is a clause and we delineate that by saying A, B, See, so for in 9 A, B, C, you have a lot of commas. First comma, A. Second comma, B. So that's how you know how to follow along. The process. How did this preacher go about teaching others, disciple others? According to verse 9, C and 10, he says he did this by weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. This is for free. It's not even in my manuscript. You want to know how to, how to get more out of the Bible? Weigh it, study, arrange. Help me, Pastor. Okay. Weighing is the idea of scales. A lot of times uh, in, in, in Proverbs, it talks about, in, 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 in Minor Prophets, it talks about unjust scales. That means the scales were fixed so that they could charge people more for something. 
And so he's saying that what the preacher did was he took his writings, the Proverbs, everything that he knew and learned about, and he literally weighed them to see if they were actually true. He, he evaluated them. That, that's why I believe it was the Apostle Peter who says that you're not supposed to take what you're, uh, essentially, I'm paraphrasing and summarizing here, you don't take what I say at face value. You ought to give me a measure of trust. God has called me. I went to school and spent a whole bunch of thousands of dollars to learn this stuff. I went to a very reputable school to learn. And so there ought to be a measure of trust that you give me as your pastor. Matter of fact, as the pastor, this is the Bible, I'm your gift. In Jeremiah 3.15 God said, and I will give you shepherds, pastors, after my own heart. And let me do a little teaching real quick. This is uncomfortable, but I got to teach y'all. Whenever God gives you a gift, you take care of it. And I'm not saying that to get anything out of y'all, because the bridge takes care of us really well. And I thank you for that. This is an opportunity actually for me to say thank you for how you love my family, how you take care of us. Keep on doing it, by the way. But the Bible says also in Ephesians 4, he says and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. How do you know? I've said this before, but y'all forgot it. How do you know if I'm affected at, at my job? If you want to do an annual performance review of your pastor, you measure me according to Ephesians 4. Am I equipping you to do the work of the ministry? And so I said all that to say, I can't remember, but I said all that to say that the way you shouldn't take anything I say just at face value. Well, Brandon said it, so it's true. You need to weigh it. You need to go and study it for yourself. Try to understand it yourself. Read other sources, other commentaries to see if what I say lines up with what God said. So he weighed it. He evaluated it. He examined it. And then he carefully arranged it in some logical order. In other words... The preacher wrote with logical clarity. He made sure the Proverbs were balanced and weighty. Not only did he write with logical clarity, but he also wrote with literary artistry. I don't even know what I just said, but it sounded good. <laughs> he wrote with literary artistry. Look at verse 10. He says, the preacher sought to find words of delight. He, he, he made them easy on the ear, pleasing to the ear. They, they were pleasurable. Friends, Ecclesiastes is a work of literary art. Think about it. It's in this book, in Ecclesiastes, that we get sentences like, a threefold cord is not easily broken. I would have said something like, community matters, get a bridge group. It's from this book that we get a sentence like, God has placed eternity in man's heart. Hmm. That's good stuff. It's in this book that we get poems like, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Friends, this is, he, 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 took care, he took great care to craft his images and his words, it is a work of beauty. Now, I don't say this just to pat uh, Solomon, the preacher, on the back, but I think this reveals, since this is inspired and God has preserved it through history, it reveals to us how beautiful God is. God, everything he does is a work of beauty. Let me give you something else. This is free. Man, y'all getting too much free stuff today. I didn't say y'all took care of me that well. I can get all this free stuff. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you are his workmanship. That word workmanship is poema. 
in the Greek, P-O-E-M-A. It's where we get our, our, our word poem from. You are a work of art crafted by Almighty God. And my prayer for someone in this room today is that when you look in the mirror, you see someone who's been created in the image of God. Stop defining yourself, child of God, by the standards of American culture. We don't know what beautiful is. What God has created and put together, that was God's work of art. You are literally a piece of work created by God. So that was the process. It was a work of literary artistry, but it was also, we're still talking about the process of how the preacher wrote. It was also, there was also intellectual integrity. Look at verse 10. The last half of verse 10 says, now, and he uprightly wrote words of truth. He was faithful in telling and recording truth. And that's why this, this, this endorser is able to support the book, encourage others to read it, because the preacher wrote words of truth honestly and correctly. We see the person, we see the process. The endorser also gives us the purpose in verses 11 and 12. Let me first give you, there's two there's a twofold purpose here in 1112. Let me give you the preacher's purpose for recording and, and sharing his words of wisdom with us. Look at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. Pastor, help me. You just said you went to school for all this. A goad was a long stick with a very sharp end that was used by shepherds to poke and to prod cattle. The purpose of that sharp stick was to evoke pain in the animal. The reason they wanted to evoke pain was because they needed to go a certain way. The shepherd knew the best way, the safest way, and maybe even the quickest way. But the animals didn't always want to go the way the shepherd wanted them to go. So the shepherd would take, oh, I feel this now. The shepherd would take the stick, the sharp stick, and he poke them, and it created pain to let them know you're going the wrong way. Go this way instead. And so the, what the, this endorser says, he says the words are like a sharp gold. Not only are they like sharp gold, I'm coming back. He says they are also like firmly fixed nails. Don't think about nails you hang your pictures up on the wall. No, think about pegs. They will put these, what they call nails, we call them pegs. They will put them, this is what you will put into a tent because they're traveling. And so he'd have to pitch a tent and so that the tent wouldn't blow away during turbulent times. He'd put a nail there to secure it and make it stable. And so essentially, this, the, the, the endorser says the reason, the purpose of the preacher sharing this wisdom is for our benefit. Wise words get us moving in the right direction by causing us a little pain. The Bible calls that conviction. He, 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 he pokes us with his word when we're headed in a direction contrary to God's will. Would my God really cause me pain? Yes. It's for your salvation and your sanctification. The preacher's purpose 
And sharing these wise words was to convict us so that we would go the right way and also to keep us stable and secure in turbulent times. Friend, I don't know if you got the memo, but I have to tell you some bad news. We are living in turbulent times. Grandmother would say, it's the last days, baby. So get yourself together. Get yourself right. We're living in the last days. And I'm telling you, let me just be completely transparent and honest. If it were not for my faith, I would lose my mind. I have to admit, people who don't know the Lord, I'm amazed at how they make it from day to day. Because if I didn't, if I wasn't sure that God was in control of all this chaos, I'd just want to hang up and just say, see y'all later. I would want to lose my mind. But I know that weeping may endure for the night, but joy is coming in the morning. I know that one day my king and my savior is coming back and he's going to make all things right. He's going to make sure justice is, is, is passed out. If I didn't know those things, I'd lose my mind. And so I thank God for his word. His words are like firmly fixed nails. They keep me stable and secure rather than wanting to give up and run away, put in my resignation letter. He gives me his word to comfort me and give me stability and security. Y'all ain't said amen. You're like, you had a resignation letter? Come on, stick with me now. So we see the preacher's purpose in sharing the wisdom. But I think we also see this endorser's purpose in verse number 12. Look at verse 12. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There is no end, and much study is weariness of flesh. If you are in school, do not quote this verse to your parents. I, I, I felt it in my spirit. That is not what he's talking about. What is he talking about, though? Now, who is this son? I don't know. Now, here's the thing. This son could be a literal, literal, biological son. Or the, this term that's used here for son could also refer to a disciple, a mentee, or student. Either way, the endorser is warning this person to be careful of writings outside of the ones that come from men like the preacher. There are a lot of books out there, friends. Do you not know that over a million books are published every year? And this endorser is saying to us, be careful what you read and how you interpret what you read. What do you mean, Pastor? See, oftentimes what we do is we read some book outside of God's word, which is good because all truth is God's truth. We read this book. The problem is we use those books to interpret the Bible. In other words, we scrutinize the Bible in light of extra biblical reading. Church, hear me, this is dangerous and backwards. The right way is we should interpret other books in light of what God has revealed in Holy Scripture. And if it doesn't line up with Scripture, it ain't truth. The Bible, friends, should be the standard by which all other books are scrutinized and deemed to be true or false. That's why the books of the Bible, when you have them collected together, they are called the canon, C-A-N-O-N. The term canon literally means a measuring stick, a rule, or standard for testing straightness. My point, here's my simple point. Let the Bible be the canon for all other books. And as we do that, we will learn, we will see that there is no other book 
like this book. No other book gives us life direction, meaning, and purpose like the Bible. That's just the endorsement. So let me get to the main point of the sermon. Verses 13 and 14. We, we move now from the endorsement of the book to the end of the matter. This writer now says, this is the end of the matter. This is the conclusion. Here's the grand finale. All has been heard. I've said what I had to say, or the preacher said what he had to say. Nothing has to be said. It's time for dismissal. And so he says, here's the end of the matter. Let me first give you the mandate, the mandate. Before we get there, let's review a little bit. The author opened the book by telling us in just a few short verses in chapter 1 that everything is vanity. It, it is meaningless and pointless because everything is essentially like a breath or a vapor. It, it's all temporary. Here today, gone tomorrow. And so, if you remember the slide, the, the slide that we show uh, for the sermon series, it's called the search for meaning. In other words, it seems as, and we followed the preacher along this journey to determine, is there any meaning to life? And if there is, what is the meaning? Or can we find meaning in life? And I would suggest that the preacher answer these two questions in these last two verses. It has taken him 12 chapters to make his point. Here it is. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. We follow this preacher on his journey of finding meaning. And this preacher has said, I tried women. I tried work. I've tried workers. I've had wealth. I've tried to accumulate wisdom. And here's what he kept coming up with. All is vanity. So then, we've been on this search with this preacher for a few months now. What have we concluded? The preacher's conclusion was that there is meaning in life. The meaning of life is found in fearing God. Friends, there is no point to life without total surrender to God of every aspect of daily life. There is no meaning to life without living in awe of almighty, holy God. Let me stop real quick. Awe, A-W-E. You know I got that twang, so I need to spell it for y'all. Awe. The reason some of us are struggling in our faith and in our walk with God is because, because we've lost some of our awe of most holy God. I love Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah that I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and there was the seraphims and the cherubims and, and they cried one to another, holy, holy, holy. That, that, that's what happens when you are in awe of God. You, you are amazed and mesmerized by who he is. He is the creator of everything. Think about this. He is the one who took nothing and made everything. See, see, y'all have lost some of your all because you should have been running around this place right now. I said he took nothing. Think about it, nothing. How do you take nothing 
and create the heavens and the earth. How do you take nothing and make the moon and the stars? How do you take nothing and make the plants of the earth? We've lost our awe. If you show up on Sunday, and I know we all get this way. We feel like we just have to be here. You know you're supposed to be here. It's part of your uh, spiritual discipline. It's part of your Christian duty. Brandon's always telling you you need to be in church on Sunday mornings. And sometimes we go through the motions. We've lost our awe. You need, we've got to stand in amazement of this most holy God. So that we come in together when we gather and every day in the week where we just cry, holy, holy, holy. And and that sums up all of his attributes because we could just say love, 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 gracious, gracious, merciful, merciful. He's somebody that's that's slow to anger. Who you ought to be giving God some praise right now because you know you've done enough just in the last 24 24 hours to make him want to whoop your behind, but he's slow to anger. He he, he didn't didn't goad you yet. I don't even know if that's the right term. He didn't stick you with with that sharp stick yet. Why? Because he's slow to anger. He could at this very moment say, I want my breath back. And, and now nah, we got to plan your funeral, and I got to say ashes to ashes, dust to dust, but he's slow to anger. We've lost our all, church. That's what it means to fear God. It's an attitude of adoration and worship. He says, the way you find meaning and satisfaction in life is to fear God. It's in fearing God that everything else has meaning. That's why, that's why the preacher said himself, y'all, I tried everything that y'all trying right now, and it's all vanity. It's temporary. It's unfulfilling. But God, he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's eternal. He ain't going nowhere. Excuse my grammar. But that's how I feel it in my soul. We've lost our awe, church. He says it's in fearing God, totally surrendering to God, completely dedicating every part of our lives to God where we find meaning. It's in fearing God that gives color to our bland lives. Think about all the things you do to find happiness and joy and contentment only for you to eventually be discontent. Fear God. And it's in fearing God that we sin a little bit less. How do you know you fear God? It's in the text. Fear God and keep his commandments. Those who fear God obey God. Fearing is the attitude. Obedient is the action that follows the attitude. Let me help you right here because some of us will want to start straight with the obeying part. That's what we call legalism. We're going to earn God's favor, earn God's blessing, earn God's approval. By doing the right things, keeping the Ten Commandments. Actions are the outflow of the attitude. Same thing with repentance. Repentance, if we're not careful, we will make repentance into sin management. We try to change behaviors without changing our hearts. That's why some of your behavior change doesn't last because you never change the heart. Heart is fear God. Now, because I fear God, I'm going to obey him. So this obedience, is it's out of joy and it's out of love. Jesus said it this way, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Keeping commands is the the demonstration of our love, our attitude towards Christ. 
It's in fearing God, worshiping God, that we find meaning. That's the mandate. Fear God, keep his commandments. He also gives us the motivation for keeping the mandate. I'm in the text. Fear God and keep his command. Last part of verse 12 or 13, excuse me. For this is the whole duty of man. I'm finna knock you, bless your socks off. Carlton, you got on socks? Okay, good. In the original Hebrew language, the word duty does not exist. So here's the literal translation. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Here it is. For this is the whole of man. This is the purpose of our creation. Who we are at our core, in our essence, our nature, it is to fear God and keep his commandments. You want to know why you're so unhappy with your life? Why you're so unfulfilled with your life? Because you're not living out the purpose of your creation, which was to fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole of man. This is, this is how we honor our creator. By fearing him. And keeping his commandments. Y'all, I'm going to keep harping on this for as long as y'all allow me to be your pastor. I'm trying to help you reorient your way of thinking and your approach to life as a whole. Because you are frustrated with your life right now because you are putting it all in vain things. My country twain got there. Vain stuff. And I'm trying to help you to, to, to see that the cause is God, the effect is everything else. This is the whole of man. To fear God and keep his commandments. Friends, this should change our way of thinking, our perspective and approach to every area of life. The whole of man. W-H-O-L-E. It changes our view and perspective and approach in marriage. Fear God, keep his commandments. It changes the way we think about parenting. I, can't, I need to do a family series because there's some things about parenting that we got to get straight as a church. Some of the things that I'm seeing in this modern-day way of parenting, and I'm just venting. It's like Paul right now when he says, this is not the Lord, this is me. <laughs> I am extremely concerned with some of the parenting methods that I see today. This season of adolescence seems to linger. This ongoing adolescence. What do you mean? We've got 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds that still behave like they live with mama. And part of the reason is because mama treat them that way. I know somebody, I hope they don't see this at home, I know somebody back home that's 40-plus years old. BJ has more independence than him. And I got to tell that knucklehead every day, <laughs> take out the trash, take out the recycle. This is your reasonable service, being a redic. <laughs> now, I say some other things, but I messed up last week, so I ain't going to say it today. <laughs> Thank you for allowing me to vent for a moment. It changes, the, but fearing God and keeping his commandments, it changes our approach to work. It changes our approach to marriage and, and parenting. It, it, it changes our approach to every area of life. It changes our approach to homemaking. Let me, let me try it again. When I learn that the purpose of my existence, the meaning in life is fearing God and keeping his commandments, I start to see my marriage not for myself, but for the glory of God. 
I see parenting not for myself or even for the benefit of the child, but for the glory of God. I see work not as something that's monotonous and mundane and hateful, but I see it for the glory of God. I, I see serving in the church not something that I have to do because I'm saved, but something I get to do because it's for the glory of God. I see homemaking not as something my husband made me do, but it's something I get to do for the glory of God. And since I'm really just venting here, let me tell y'all something. One of the things, I, this is new to me coming to Wichita because it's just a different culture. This, this, this little war that we have going on between moms that stay at home and moms that work, it is ungodly. And let me tell you, if you are a stay-at-home mom, don't, I don't want to ever hear you say, well, I'm just a stay-at-home mama. The devil is a liar. That is a calling that you get to live out. And now, because a, a mother decides, and I'm not saying this because my, my, my wife works. I'm saying this because this is in the Bible. Just because a woman works doesn't mean she's an unfit mother. Actually, if you read Proverbs 31, that woman worked hard. She would go to the city gates because that's where they conducted business, wake up early in the morning, do all her work, and then she would go out and work, and then she'd come back and take care of home. But we do all of this, I'm done, for the glory of God. I've said this for a few weeks now, but I want to keep, keep this at the forefront of your mind. What is the chief end of man? In other words, not end like death, die, but end in the sense of purpose. What is the primary purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Motivation number two, and I'm done. He says, this is the whole of man, but he says, the other motivation for fearing God and keeping his commandments, because God's going to judge every deed that you do, the secret things and all, God's going to judge it. So the judgment seat of Christ ought to be motivation for you to fear God and keep his commandments. And he says everything, every deed, and then he puts this in there, in secret too. Let me, let me help you with, there, with this, because that's the best English word we could come up with is secret. But let me make sure you understand something. You may sin in private, but you never sin in secret. In other words, you may sin in private, meaning that nobody else is around you to see you in your sin. No other human being. But you never can sin in secret because God is everywhere. He sees all. He knows all. He hears all. He's always there. And the preacher, this, this, this endorser says he's going to judge every last one of them. It's, it's almost as if God, when you are born, he hits the record button on your life. And then he's going, he's, when you get before his judgment sit, he's going to have hit the stop button. And he's going to hit, he's going to say, rewind. <laughs> press. Oh, yes, now I'm going to run. <laughs> rewind, press play. He's going to judge every deed. So what do I do in light of this coming judgment? Get ready. I found my exit, Russ. The only way to escape the righteous judgment of God by, by sending you to eternal separation is in hell is through his son, Jesus Christ. The way to prepare for judgment is through Jesus Christ and him alone. The only way for you to be right with your maker is through Jesus. Who is this Jesus? 
He came, he lived, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, declared and demonstrated himself to be the son of God. Here it is. The penalty that you rightly deserved, he took upon himself by dying on the cross. He died your death. He took the penalty that you deserve. He put it on himself, was buried and rose the third day victoriously from the grave. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And I've told you before, you know why he's sitting, right? Because he's done. He said, it is finished. I ain't got to stand up because there's no more work to be done. The work I'm doing now, I can sit down and do it. I'm praying for y'all. That's the only way to prepare for this coming judgment. It's through Jesus. And friends, for those of us who are already saved, we don't have to fear judgment because we know our eternal destiny is secure in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but has everlasting life. That is the promise that we can proclaim. It is a promise that we can hang our hats on. It's a promise that we can take to the bank because we don't serve an Indian giving God. Once he gives it to us, it is ours. Otherwise, Jesus would have to come back and keep dying every time we sin. And so we don't have to fear the judgment seat as far as our eternal destiny is concerned. We know that when we see him, we're going to be like him, and we will spend eternity with Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. However, we still will uh, see him at his judgment seat. In every deed that we've done, he's going to judge. Not for the purpose of our salvation, but for the purpose of reward. And if you ever wonder, what are we going to do with all those rewards that we get? We're going to cast them at the feet of Jesus. And when I get there, I, I want to have more rewards than Connie. <laughs> Hopefully he would have given, I'll be rid of that competitive spirit that I have. <laughs> but, but when I get to heaven, I want to be able to serve my Jesus, my Savior, and my Lord, and my Master. So is there any point in living life? With everything that is vanity, the preacher says, yes, fear God and keep his commandments. Can I find personal meaning in life? The preacher says, yes. It's only though when you fear God and keep his commandments. So now we've learned the two purposes for the book, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he first tells us that everything is vanity. But there's hope in fearing God and keeping his commandments. The church said, 